We are here with the July episode of the uh, Behind the DM Screen podcast. Yeah, that's what we are. Um, and it's three DMs talking about their games and helping each other out. And that's all the introduction you get. It is our uh, episode of Independence, if you will, since we're recording it on the 4th of July. See what I did Woo-hoo. there? That's right. Yay. Well done. So... Uh, we're going to jump right into it because I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and I have a lot to do to prepare. Uh, so we're going to go quick tonight. Randall, you're up. Go. Let's do it. Well, let's say a, uh, a, a, a good thank you to the Chinese ancestors that invented gunpowder so that so many Americans could have a great day today. <laughs> <laughs> so, but getting that out of the way. Hey, guys, guess what? You played. actually played some D&D last Woo! month. Yay! That's right. Sat down at the table. Six other individuals. Got out the Lego minifigs, got out the drawn maps, and we did some D&D. That's right. Um, uh, as you might have heard from previous episodes, we jumped into the Village of Omelette and um, had a great time. Uh, in fact, my wife's sitting here beside me, so she'll call me on anything that uh, I'm saying that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to be careful what I say, and I don't have a script. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I uh, had a great time. Um, everyone seemed to get into their characters really well and uh, most of them provided some good background material for me to work with uh, things went pretty smoothly um, like I said we did not we did character creation a couple of months back so uh, we didn't have to get that out of the way um, oh I don't know if I mentioned we're playing D&D next if that hasn't been clear from previous episodes but uh, or if you're just now tuning in but uh, yeah so Village of Hamlet's pretty well, it's a pretty old adventure. It's been well established, um, been run millions of times, I'm sure, um, by lots of different people. I've run it a couple of times myself previously and have, was a player in it at, at least once. So uh, it's one of my favorite modules. I love it as an introductory module. It gives you everything you need in the town to um, to be able to uh, set up. If you want to know how to run a D&D town, look at the Village of Hamlet. It's got just about everything. Um a lot of people have had things of words against it because you know they provide stats for every single farmer and you know every farmer has like some wealth stashed away and things like that and the argument goes that well if the players weren't meant to kill off all those people why do they they put that information in the module <laughs> right but uh, which is a complaint i mean you could say that sure but why not right i mean for me all that is wonderful background material and just because it's there doesn't mean that the characters are going to go and I uh, see what's the term um, uh, murder hobos, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, go and, and you know act like murder hobos over the entire town. Um, yeah, exactly. So one of the things that um, I did do though is to uh, give each of them a little hook into why they had to go to the moat house in the first place, um, because they don't they don't know each other previously. Uh, they joined together on the road like a couple of weeks out. And uh, each of them was drawn to Hamlet for a um, mysterious reason. Strange notes were passed to, um, to each one. And I told them, I gave them an NPC that was in Hamlet. And their note only said Hamlet and then the name of the NPC that they were supposed to see. Hmm. And I tried, to link, I tried to match those up. Like, for example, the druid in the party was supposed to meet up with Jaru who is the druid of the grove. Um, 
And uh, the magic user in the party was supposed to meet up with Burn, and the um, uh, fighter in the party was supposed to meet up with uh, Rufus. And so I kind of matched them up by class, um, which I think went really well. It w- the one drawback with doing that, and, and um, everyone pretty much made a note of that, but it was kind of hard. I wanted people to get involved in the story a little bit, but one of the things that yeah, I had to kind of like take them out to the kitchen and give them a little s- spiel solo so that they would kind of know what was going on and that wasn't just necessarily open in front of the whole table. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, which slows things down a little bit, but um, I, I think it went really well, and things really moved along once we got into the moat house. Um, they were held up by the fact that the bandits were not pushovers. Um, they, like, barricaded the door immediately and um, used, uh, to great effect, the uh, uh, arrow slits mm-hmm. <laughs> that are on the outside perimeter of that open courtroom where they first go in. And, of course, the, the party didn't make any special considerations for as far as stealth or anything like that. And at the same time, they decided to also split up. So while three of them were at the door, three of them decided to go around to see if they could find another entrance. So they did. The, they walked the perimeter of the moat house. And so they were down, down a guy. and um, But they finally, they finally found the, the side entrance where the bandits can, like, slip in and out. Because the bandits had decided that they were going to go ahead and um, leave, particularly when the party set the doors on fire. Um, so they started to try to smoke them out, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they were trying to smoke them out, that's when the fighter got shot with arrows and he got knocked unconscious. Didn't kill him, but he got knocked unconscious. And so he was he, the fighter was out. So they, you're, you're left with the um, with the well, who was it? It was the wizard and the ranger. Okay, the wizard and the ranger were left inside. The other remaining three, and, and the fighter who was unconscious, and then the other three, the uh, rogue, the... Uh, uh, the druid! The druid. <laughs> <laughs> you guys heard that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> and um, and who... Oh, the monk. Yeah, he was, he was the... We're scouting the perimeter. Um, they kind of boxed the... They uh, eventually boxed the bandits in and um, uh, worked their way in. The druid changed into a bear to great effect. Um, it actually, uh, one of the uh, bandits actually crapped his pants because <laughs> it was unexpected. <laughs> what, what level are they? They're first level. Okay. She can turn into a bear because she chose the, um, what was it, the Path of the Moon or whatever uh, the... Uh, uh, cool. Yeah. Um, so she has a... Uh, better shape changing options mm-hmm. and um and that so uh but it that's pretty much what the, after they wiped out the bandits that's pretty much where they had to stop um because we had the introductory material and things like that to get into the city cool so everything um, everything's so, going well you just wanted to uh get them a little more hooked to the story huh yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, give them some reason to be. Uh, basically, what it amounts to is each of them have an item to find within the moat house. Mm-hmm. The druid was awesome. Yes, <laughs> I would like to emphasize once again that my wife, who played the druid, was awesome. Mm. That's, a, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, well played. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, but 
but no, everyone had a great time. I think um, the rules weren't really, you know, the actual combats and things weren't really quick, yeah. uh, which is what I expected. Uh, there wasn't a whole, like I said, the, uh, my wife actually had to be reminded that she could shape change. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, once she figured that out, it was like, oh. <laughs> uh, and, of course, retrieving the big uh, uh, dire bear, you know, large miniature that I had in mm. place of hers was, um, was great fun. Sure. And um, and so that was a you know it was it was a good time. Like I said, um, I didn't mean to distract myself, but yeah, six. I I grabbed six items that are actually in the module, mm-hmm. and told them and and concocted reasons. Some of them almost on the fly for mm-hmm. why this why the character had to get that item. So kind of brings them into that. Um, I'll do some more development for story as we go along a little further. Yeah. But, um, so. What are what, give, give us an example of of some of the reasons you came up with? Like, I want to know how specific or how how broad they they were. Oh well, they run the gamut. Um, one, Jar, uh, Jaru was asked to, um, and my wife's upstairs now, so hopefully she won't be <laughs> yeah. hearing this. Spoilers. Uh, yeah, Jaru asked the druid to get a sample of green slime for a project he was working I see. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, everyone knows there's green slime in the dungeon. Um, and so that's that's one, and he and he gave her a, a vial to be able to hold it in. Yeah, to put it in. Um, the thief was asked to with to find a uh, ruby-topped platinum pen, hmm. which used to belong to the queen. So um, there's some backstory there that I'm trying to develop. He's actually, even though he's a rogue, because that's the class, mm-hmm. he's more of an assassin type. Mm-hmm. And he's actually running from the circle of assassins because they asked him to do a job and he refused to do it because it was assassinating the queen. And he said, nope. And so he's on the run, kind of. He's sort of, he's trying to be incognito as far as from the assassins guild. Mm-hmm. So um, so he was asked to get this pen. Um, the, I'm trying to think of some of the others. I'm just. I mean, but yeah, so you, it's, it, it runs the. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that you were trying to find ways to inject more story, I guess, and or, or hook them more into the story. Right. And so I was wondering if there was some way of getting them to develop some background on this stuff. But the items aren't specific to to them. It's specific to a task they were given by somebody in town. By NPCs, right? Okay. Yeah, kind of. It, you know, basically a standard quest mechanic, but I'm not ashamed sure. to use those. <laughs> uh, you, uh, but you know. although I can, I can think of a few things you might do um, that could mix things up a little bit and encourage some more more hook to story. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on how subtle or overt or what kind of uh, gimmick you want to use here, because um, you could do something similar, like uh, you guys had suggested to me. Where you know a session or two down the road, ask them a question about you know whatever it is they're doing, and have them fill in some background on themselves mm-hmm. in the process. Uh, right. But maybe instead of the items, um, which have already have sort of a background to them, right, and why they're going after them. But right. ma- but maybe say you know, okay, you've been working for Jeru. Um, give me give me a story. Why why are you connected to Drew to begin with? You know, have him go into some of their own background and, and connect themselves to the people, to the, some of the NPCs a little more. Um, that's one of the things that's actually a mystery because all of their notes when they found them, like for example, um, the ranger had gone swimming in a pond. Mm-hmm. When he woke up, there was this note tucked into his boot. Hmm. 
that had the word Hamlet. So they don't so and they all know that they each received this kind of message. Um like the assassins, for example, when he woke up there was a dagger stuck into the headboard and mm-hmm. his note was pinned under the dagger. Sure. Um so they don't who, who know who put all those out. That's the mystery. Do you know? I'm not entirely sure. Okay. <laughs> no, that's fine. But um, but you could I'm you could have you could, you could have a point like <laughs> m- midway through the adventure or so. Right. You could have a point where um where you have them come up with that. Right. You know? I figured what would happen is that as the story developed a little bit more and they got a little bit more adventuring under their belt, there would eventually either it might either be I haven't decided. It could be a benefactor. It could be a. It could be a, uh, an enemy. Who I think, knows? I think maybe you know they could just have a uh, a revelation. You know, the, their memory block could sort of uh, or it could open up or whatever. Something was stopping them from remembering something important. You know, and, and now you realize uh, who sent you that message, and then ask them all. Okay, so who sent you the message? Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, that's a possibility. I can see yeah. where you're going to that. I, I, yeah, yeah, it's possible. I also thought it could be it could be useful or or interesting anyway in terms of throwing in obstacles uh, and encouraging some role playing is um, have th- have them each sort of answer a question that is going to connect them to the other person's goal. Um, you know, um, ask ask somebody who's what is it? Ask like the rogue or the wizard. Um, why do you have? A, a deathly fear or phobia of green slime. Mm-hmm. You know, so then when then when the druid's okay. sitting there trying to scoop it all up, they're like, "Ah, get that stuff away!" You know. <laughs> I see what you're saying. So, yeah, so mix, yeah they're kind of like leading, leading questions, yeah. right? What are the what are the you you, you kind of have you know the question that has within it sort of a right you know a story hook already in it, but it leaves part of that open for the you know for the players to figure out. Yeah. Right. Um, now, one of the things about my particular players is that um, a lot of them would prefer to be led a little bit. Sure. Right. They don't – they're not real um, – uh, I'm trying, trying to figure they, out a way to say like it. They don't put themselves out there? Not really. Um, not so much. Uh, they'll uh, – they do fine at the table, but once we're from the table, the game stopped. Sure. And so until the next time we're at the table, they don't think about – they're not thinking about character development. They're not yeah, thinking about any of those other kind of things, which is fine. And I, do, as a DM, as those do, people, yeah. you can do this stuff right at the table. I mean, I, I did something similar. I think it was at Mike's suggestion, um, where I, I basically I just wrote the leading questions on a mm-hmm. on a note card, mm-hmm. and when they showed up at the table that day, I handed them the note card, and they wrote down their answer, and then handed it back to me when they were done, and mm-hmm. you know, and then I flipped through those as we were starting the game. Right. Yeah, I did something similar for um, White Plume Mountain. I mean, and something that sounds like it was it fits your game. White Plume Mountain surrounds three items that are buried off in in this old dungeon, and and uh, right where the items are the actual goal of the module. Yeah, yeah, right. But I don't I don't remember if it's real. Yeah, right, because it's like the the evil wizard stole the items and hit him in the thing and left a note saying, "Hi, I've got your items." But right, then there's never any explanation as to why why did they have the why did he go get the items and how did he go get the items? Right, They're never really clear. That, um, that's that's parts. That, I mean, yeah, for that module, that's definitely true. Yeah, the yeah, why is not something really that, answered. Yeah, I did the 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 whole dungeon is a phylacrity and it feeds off life energy and whatnot. Mm. Um, <laughs> I made something. Up. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it's the same kind of thing where you say like, okay, what ha- you know, why did you lose the sword? is a leading question like obviously you lost a sword there was a sword it is lost and you have to cover it but you get to describe what happened that yeah. led to its loss and they go oh, i was asleep or and i think eventually I'll get to the that cards 
and I think eventually I'll get to that development. But um, right now, I'm literally just they're doing some questing for NPCs mm-hmm. so that they can get some experience under their belt. They don't. I haven't worded it in that way. Sure. But that's kind of what the goal is at this point. And all the stories are sort of disconnected. Eventually, I will start to blend some of these together probably. Okay. Maybe not. Maybe some will be dead ends. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I know my time is up, but the fighter has to retrieve, um, I don't know if you remember, but on the first floor, jammed behind a bookcase is a an ornate sword. It's non-magical. It's a broadsword. But it's um, worth some money. Well, that sword belonged to um, a soldier who has passed away, so, uh, someone that served under um, Rufus. And the wife of that soldier came to Rufus and said, you know, can't get my husband back, but can you retrieve his sword? Sure. Right. And so they've asked, because the particular fighter that I'm talking about was in the military service, they he there's a connection there and in fact he served with him that's where my i've connected that part mm-hmm. and cool. and so so yeah there's some of these things some of these threads will tie together some might be just one-offs and you know you find the thing and you're good but maybe the other ones will eventually lead to something bigger and will guide the party to other things so well it sounds like you are well prepared and yes. speaking of being well prepared People should go to noblenight.com and check out our pick of the episode, Never Unprepared. Ha! Uh, way to segue. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> uh, Never Unprepared is actually our book club book of the month. We're reading it this month um, of July. Uh, and it's about, it's all, it's just, it's a short, a relatively short book about, um, 132 pages about being doing session prep, right? Getting prepared for your game and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. uh, people should check it out. It's $18 over at uh, noblenight.com and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade. So you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. And now it's Mike. All right. Well, I haven't been playing the last couple of weeks, so it's my turn to kind of be foggy and not really remember anything about what's been going on. <laughs> um, I do remember that the last major thing our group was doing... They were going through a haunted mansion. Um, the party has been uncovering this evil plot uh, throughout the city of Magnamar in the Inner Sea. This is a Pathfinder campaign mm-hmm. uh, set in the Inner Sea in the city of Magnamar. Very urban, urban adventure with ancient ruins underneath the city, which is one of my favorite staples in many adventures that I run. They, ran, they did something very much like this last campaign, too. And like they noted the similarities. Um, they found out that a bunch of this crazy sort of PCP heroiny sort of drug uh, that is 
infused with evil spirits and the souls of sacrificed uh, prostitutes and whatnot um, has being is being shipped to this house on the outskirts of the city. And the house they believe has been abandoned or kind of abandoned. A guy was supposed to be up, upgrading it, but hadn't really been upgrading it. No there's one no, knows nothing, what there's nothing like a nose full of prostitutes sold to get a party going. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, right. The stuff kept getting creepier and creepier too. Like it started off, it's like, oh, it's just an extract extract of a strange plant, and it's like, well, no, you know, they're actually boiling people and using the boiled people with the extract i'm like man this stuff gets worse and worse but it's very valuable extremely valuable stuff right so if the party's willing to sell it then you know they could make a lot of money um and most of the party's like no we're gonna try it like oh the other thing is you can't really destroy it like if you if you if you just break up the pots it just gets in the water supply and it makes everybody crazy so you don't want that like turn an entire city into ghouls um, and that's essentially what it does is, is when, 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 when people are fed this thing, it kind of turns them into ghouls, uh, so, it turns them into these, you know, pseudo intelligent, psychotic murdering ghouls. So like so, a doctor, uh, Dr. Hyde, I mean, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. No, it kind of turns them permanently into one, you know, like it puts okay. them, the idea is if, if people ingest this, this, this chemical, uh, at the right rate, like too much of it, and you just sort of melt from the inside out. Okay. Um, but if you have enough of it, it essentially puts you in this weird state between life and death, where you're not quite dead, you're not quite alive, you're not quite undead, you're something in between. Okay. And you know, you 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 sort of become you know like you become sort of sexless and ravenous and. Uh, you you still have some intelligence, but most of your most of your drive is murder. Okay, I have I have a plot question for you then. Sure. Uh, why would anyone take this drug? Uh, you would not take it voluntarily. No one would take it voluntarily. So the, oh, okay, the, so it's like a poison. It's more like it's, a poison. It's more like a poison. It's like a widespread poison. But, uh, okay, so that but the herb clears it up. Okay, right. The herb component of this thing. Um, was a drug. It, it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of like pot, it, you know, or okay. pot, pot is more like acid, right? Like you'd take it and you'd get and get hallucinations and you'd get high okay. and it was kind of fun. And the party at one point burned an entire field of this stuff, like a refined field in a cavern underneath the city. And the smoke just started coming out of the sewers and <laughs> the lower part of the city, everybody was kind of going nutty for a while, and then eventually it blew out to sea, and everything got nice. you know they all they all got fine again because it was pretty it was pretty abstract at that point, but but it did have an effect, yeah. And th- and again, that was kind of a fun thing that just sort of occurred as the party did it. Like I had no idea that that was going to happen. I didn't set it up at all. <laughs> um, and then, but it's the it's the super refined version of this that the guy wanted to put in the water supply so he could basically you know create. I mean, he's got. He's got big plots and reasons why, but Michelle, I don't know if Michelle can hear me or not. <laughs> and the plots and reasons might not have been finished by the time this podcast comes out, so I'll have to be coy. But there's a reason why, like, the main villain is is putting this out there. And uh, one thing I do is I have multiple villains. I always like to have, like, a cabal of bad guys instead of just one. And um, the main bad guy that they're going after now is a guy known as this, uh, uh, not the Skinsaw. Father Skinsaw, he's called. Ooh. And he's he actually maintained more of his intelligence than most when ingesting this stuff. And and there's a whole kind of you know transformation that he made. But he's he's kind of bigger and more powerful than the normal ones. 
Uh, but he is still himself a pawn in a larger game uh, where he's kind of being manipulated by somebody who is only referred to with the infinity sign as his signature. Um, and and the, the players have discovered numerous written artifacts that have this signature on it. Um, so they've already defeated like one of the three main villains. Uh, they're kind of on their way to the second of the three. And I don't know if they'll even ever run into the third or not. Like the third one is really smart. And the idea that he would ever put himself in a position to be, you know, killed by adventurers is, is not likely. Um, he has an agent who very likely will be (laughs) named Ash. Um, (laughs) but he himself is, is, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's known as the forever man. And um, he's got, you know, plots that have gone on forever and, and he uh, he doesn't put himself in a position to get nabbed up. He's Moriarty. Yeah, he's very much a Moriarty character. Okay. And he has he has a, a few different plots that are going on himself, a few different motivations that he's got. But he's not the one with the infinity symbol, right? He is the one with the infinity symbol. Oh, he is. OK. Because yeah. that but sounds like the symbol for Ayun, isn't it? I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, but this is yeah set in yeah. a totally different world. So who knows? Oh, OK. Um, so the. You know, this is this is kind of the way I like to run campaigns with. I, I focus on the villains and I focus on what they're doing and make sure that what they're doing is something that players would get or PCs would get involved in. And then the PCs get exposed to a whole other angle to it. And it's kind of a fun way for me to watch a story evolve. And I think it ends up being building a pretty realistic, uh, you know, a pretty realistic scenario. Things are always going on. If they decide to go one direction, then things start to progress in the other direction and on another side. They come back out and they go, oh, man, you know, there's been more murders. You know, our whole goal was to stop these murders from the skin cell cultists. And we got off exploring old ruins and we came back and now there's been like six more murders. <laughs> you know, like this is really bad. And and like their boss, you know, the, the guy who hired him in the first place is getting madder and madder. Like, why are you dealing with this? I hired you guys. I gave you a stipend. I gave you, you know, all this stuff. And you what? And they're like, well, we got these old artifacts. Like, who cares about the old artifacts? Well, it's connected somehow. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you're talking about connected stuff, and there's dead women hung up outside of our hall. What are you doing? So that's kind of fun, uh, mm-hmm. the evolving evolving storylines. The other thing I've been doing recently, and, and I wrote a Sly Flourish article about this, is um, handouts and writing handouts as a way to do game prep so that, you know, I've, instead of kind of sitting down and outlining a story or outlining kind of the next adventure, I'll write it from the point of view of the bad guys as like a, a, a journal entry or as a letter that they're sending from one villain to another. Hmm. And it kind of outlines the locations that are going to be a big deal. It outlines the, the plots that are going on. It identifies the main villains. And that kind of generates the story, the, the web of the story that the PCs will kind of get tangled up in. Um, and it's a handout that the players will eventually get. So the players then have this clear, like, ah, here are these three places that we have to worry about. Here are these three bad guys that we should be paying attention to. And here are these three story seeds that, you know, are these three things that we need to stop before they happen. But it's written from an in-game perspective. So it, it, it serves multiple purposes. Like it helps, it helps, a, it helps me prepare, right? Like this is how I can think about what's been going on in the game. It helps the players have an idea of of the boundaries of the sandbox they're swimming in. That's a terrible mixed metaphor. Um, <laughs> and it uh, uh, it also creates this kind of fun handout, right? Like a like a, a, a physical prop that that the players will kind of enjoy beyond just 
you know. How, how, long, does, how long does it take you to do that? Not long. Um, probably, you know, when I when I set it up, maybe maybe fifteen minutes. If I'm only doing one, like I did a I did one that probably took an hour. And what I did for that one, this is the haunted mansion that they've been going through. Um, I realized I did one night of adventure. I didn't know they were going there, so I didn't have anything prepared. And they did it, and and I realized like there's this whole kind of background story to this haunted mansion that they're in that they're not under they're not going to understand. Like there's all these weird haunted things that are going on, but they don't know why it was haunted, and they don't they don't get any of the background that made it haunted. So I said I've, I've got to give this to them. So what I did is I wrote like a big long journal entry that was like maybe eight or 10 paragraphs, 12 paragraphs, maybe of two or three sentences each. Um, that was written from the guy who's the new young caretaker of this mansion. And it starts off with like, you know, I came from the other world. My, my, you know, my parents are dead and I, I, I inherited the legacy and I want to make this a good mansion again. And, it starts getting crazier and crazier. And I, I wrote it like a Lovecraft story. There was a, I can't remember the name of the Lovecraft story. It's like the thing under the mansion or something. There's a Lovecraft story about a guy who inherits a mansion in New Hampshire. And there's like this weird, evil, physical thing in the earth that like makes everybody that ever goes to the mansion go crazy and die. And, mm. you know, women have miscarriages anytime they're there. And all kinds of horrible stuff happens. But it's all written from the point of view of this guy writing a journal entry about it. So I wanted the same thing for this haunted mansion, but I did fun things like his handwriting gets crazier and crazier as it goes. So he used different fonts throughout the journal so that like he has this really elegant script in the beginning. And then by the end, it's this like crazy, you know, crazy scratching on the page. Sure. And so I wrote these bunch of paragraphs and then I tore them into strips. So there's like these 12 or 14 strips of paper. And then each haunted room that they would go into, they they recover a strip. And that way they'd read like one strip and the puzzle would start to get played out. So they didn't have to read like two pages of stuff because nobody cares. Sure. They're only reading three sentences at a time and then they could digest those three sentences before they got the next three sentences. Did you give, and, it, to, did you give it to them in order or did you sort of randomize it? I did give it to them in order. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and it, was, it was, yeah, it was one of those where it's like it kind of didn't matter what room they went into. They always got the next one. Sure. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. You know, like they're not, nobody noticed until now um, <laughs> See, uh, I, well and i was also thinking you know i don't and i don't know if it, how much it would have completely messed up your storytelling so depending on how, how you construct yeah it, so that's the problem it, it could be fun to give it to him out of order too and yeah. let him sort of figure out the mysteries i mean you're right so there and different groups have kind of different ways you know we're a weekday group we play for two and a half hours in a session so it's a small session sure. everybody's kind of mentally tired at the end of the day anyway so they're not like burning for crazy puzzle solving sort of stuff they yeah you know, they, they are, they're, they're like Randall's group. They kind of want to, you know, go follow the path, fight the monsters, have fun, drink beer, eat brownies and, you know, have a good time. Forget about, forget about the world for a while. And, you know, they don't want to, but and they will kind of do some, some of them do like the puzzle solving. So it's not unheard of for them to kind of piece together the thing back, you know, front to back. But there's also kind of the story itself was more interesting in sequential order. Like if they got the second or third to last one early, they kind of know the punchline of what's going on before yeah, yeah. they figure it out. So, oh, so you know, yeah, that's I was wondering about how you constructed that if it yeah. could if it could go out of order or not. But no, yeah. So I didn't write it so it could go out of order, yeah. and and I think yeah, I think it ends up being better overall in order, just sure. from pacing. So that that took a while. That took you know I think I might have written that. I, I probably spent an hour on that. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't really as much. I mean, that that still had some 
element of helping me outline the story because like this guy, as he's going crazier and crazier and crazier, he meets the forever man. And, you know, he's this murderous, like, you know, you know, this crazy Jack the Ripper murderer kind of guy, you know, and he's in his like secret little cave lair where this ancient artifact is whispering to him and telling him wonderful and horrible things. And then this old guy shows up out of nowhere and he's like, I'm just going to rip this guy into pieces. And the old guy's like, look, I know who you are and I know what you're doing. And I actually have something that can help you, you know, and he's like, oh, (laughs) okay, let me talk to you. So that ended up building in for me, like an idea of how are these two guys connected and what's this relationship that they have and Mm -hmm. why and why does it work? Um, And then the players find out about it as well. Sure. And it helps tie them back to the to the main storyline. Right. Right. Cool. No, I I asked mostly about the, the time because. I think it takes me about an hour to put together the, the Temple Teller, the newsletter that I do for yeah, each session. Right, right. Uh, I think it takes me about an hour to put that together. And I feel like I, I need to do a lot of handouts because the, the adventure I'm running references a lot of, oh, yeah, you can find a letter. It kind of has this information, right? Or this, you know, that, this, that, and whatever. And I feel like <clears throat> doing that would be a really good idea. I just don't know how much more time I, I can Well, so that's the key, right? Like for me, the idea is I never would have had time to do these – or not have time. I have plenty of time. But – I would never. I would. I'm too lazy to want to do that on its own. But when I can use the time to make a handout as my game prep time, if it's the only thing I'm doing for the game for that week, now I suddenly have the time, and and it's kind of a fun creative writing sort of thing to do. So I don't know that I would do it, and I haven't really done it when I didn't need to. But <laughs> when I use it as game prep, mm-hmm. now suddenly it's like, oh well, this is really kind of interesting and fun. Because I'm getting a lot out of it. Like, I'm getting a lot out of it writing it because it helps me think about how this stuff makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I'm going to hand something out that's going to be kind of fun for the players. Yeah, absolutely. So it ends up working out. It's not something you do all the time. It, it, I think it has kind of a scope. Like, you know, it works well when you're trying to do some kind of overarching plots. It doesn't necessarily work well if it's a dungeon crawl, you know. And if, it, and if things are too open where you really don't know what direction they're going, then you really can't write a whole thing about it. You so don't know what they're going to write. You don't know. Yeah, you don't know what they're going to get involved in. But, um, but that, was, that was a fun thing to do. Um, running a haunted mansion is interesting. I think this is supposed to be sort of Ravenlofty. It feels sort of Ravenlofty. It's, it's definitely smaller than, than Ravenloft. Oh, I'm done. Um, <laughs> but that, that you know, kind of creating the scary aspects uh is is tough and interesting but the feedback i've been getting from my players is this definitely has felt different than most of the adventures we ran cool and so it worked pretty well this is all from the skinsaw cult um adventure uh it's part of the uh rise of the rune lords adventure path shattered no yeah rise of the rune lords adventure path okay. awesome speaking of scary you know where you can get some scary good deals over at Amazon no. or D&D Classics, get there through the affiliate links on at thetomeshow.com and we get a piece of the action. I am on it tonight. I buy stuff from Amazon. <laughs> Good. All right, so my turn. Uh, we played once. Uh, they can the the my players continue to not um, well, not do a few things. Uh, they continue to not go to town and get involved in any of my side quests. <laughs> um, although this time, I, I think I got them a little bit interested in it because I, in the Temple Teller, in the newsletter that I'm writing, I, I put in a little blurb about things going on in town. Right. And they're like, oh, well, that's interesting. But we're kind of in the middle of this thing right now. Maybe we'll go check that out later. So I think it's probably going to be not until they get to the other. There's two entrances to the the dungeon they're in. I think when they get to the other 
entrance. That's when they'll probably head back to town, which could not be another couple of sessions yet. Um, so we'll see. I keep, I'll, I'll keep developing these plots through the newsletter, and, and we'll just see what happens without them being there. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're continuing on through um, the wilderness section of the Outer Ridge Mines, as it's known uh, in the dungeon. And they, I think they can, they, the other thing they're not doing is they're not recognizing the scope of just how big this dungeon is. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, when they first got into the dungeon, they went to the north, they found the earth temple, they got beat up a little bit and they left and they said, well, we'll come back there when we're stronger. And so then they went south into the wilds and they've been going south through the wilds for two solid sessions now. Um, non-stop and they got into an area and they found the big bad guy uh, there who's wearing a fire temple amulet like oh we must be in the fire temple now even though the earth temple entrance was very very clear big symbols all over the place a big giant you know mosaic on the floor all that kind of stuff nothing like that going into this area Hmm. They saw one guy with a fire temple amulet, and they said, oh, well, this must be the fire temple. No fire motif anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Just one guy with an amulet. We must be in the fire temple. No, you have no idea how big this thing is. You're still in the wilderness, (laughs) you know? Right. (laughs) You're way out. Now, you are near a bridge that goes to the center of uh, the sort of the center island of the dungeon, uh, and it happens to be called the Fire Bridge. This, This one guy happens to be sort of loosely aligned with the fire temple because the fire temple is sort of thought of as being the the most powerful at the moment. And he wants to ally himself with, you know, the big dogs. And that's about it. The fire temple is actually like on the opposite side of the dungeon. So yeah, um, they're, they're in a slightly more civilized section. Now it's actually guarded and all that, although they've wiped out most of the guards. Um, they did, they did some fun stuff where once they got in, um, they, they've been dressing as cultists to s- sort of throw people off. So they walk into a room and it's, you know, it's a, it's a wizard's lab and there's two wizards in there working. They're like, oh, sorry, we're just looking for something else or whatever. And, you know, and then and they walked out. <laughs> and, then after, and then after they walk out, I'm reading, I, I just sort of skim through the section a little bit more on the wizards and like, oh, it specifically says these wizards know everybody who's supposed to be here <laughs> right. like, by face, <laughs> you know, they make it a point to, to learn who is and is not supposed to be around. And they're going to, they're gonna, not going to just let these guys walk out, walk out. They're not going to be bluffed by this. And it wasn't a very good bluff anyway. Um, so the party leaves, they sneak out another door and go to the leader, pull him into the throne room. Now I've just taken three encounters worth of stuff and stuck him into one room. Mm. So then the party finally gets down there. It's like, ah, and super hard fight. Right, which is good because um, challenging the the players in a big fight like that in in next has been a bit of a challenge. I think once we have rules for for what do they call it in that Legend of the Oracle, like legendary, mm-hmm. uh, bo- you know, creatures, so I can make bosses and whatever. I think that'll help, um, but we don't really have that now, right? Yeah, there's nothing for that yet. Yeah, so they had the so they ended up. I mean, fighting. they have they have that one for the dragon, so you have like a template. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so they had to fight the the half demon, half or or half ogre uh, leader. They had to fight face his lieutenant. Um, they had to face the two wizards, and then towards the end of the combat, the the leader who was still you know, the only one standing at that point uh, hollers down the hall, and basically uh, sixteen minions show up. Um, <laughs> you know, towards the end of the fight, which you know looks like great reinforcements until the wizard drops one fireball. Boom! You know. 
Um, so they managed to win that fight. Um, part of um, what happens in that encounter uh, or in that room is they find a halfling chained, manacled to a wall. Uh, but using manacles that were clearly set in the in the wall for humans, so he's just sort of dangling, or she's sort of dangling there. Um, and there's big divots in the wall around her, and, and on the opposite side of the room, a bunch of uh, like shot puts, iron shot puts. You know that, that they've clearly been making a sport of throwing shot puts at this at this halfling woman chained to the wall. Yeah. Uh, so they free her. They're like, oh well, you know, the cult has been going after her. Clearly, she must not be one of the bad guys. Let's let's let her go and and you know uh, ask her to join us and all that kind of stuff. So now I've got an NPC in the party who was one of the top lieutenants of the big bad guy there who just kind mm-hmm. of stole from him one too many times and got caught. <laughs> um, so they they kind of have a bad guy with her with them. Although it, you know the the module actually leaves open the opportunity for this to happen. Um, you know that. She's not particularly loyal to the cult. She's not particularly loyal to anybody. She's just in there to make a buck. So she, she'll happily go with the party and probably rob them at the earliest possible moment. When they're in some sort of delicate negotiation thing, she's going to come in and say the most inappropriate thing. Uh, you know, she's a halfling barbarian rogue, right? So she's not real couth anyway. Um, so, uh, but, but I'm also finding her to be a great way to give them some of that information that I want them to have. Um, you know, let she, she let them know, oh no, this isn't the fire temple. He just allied himself with the fire temple because they're the most powerful and he wants to be associated with that. You know, he, she could, she could tip a little bit of that information off and, and that's filling in some of the roles of, um, not having those handouts and things like you talked about, you know, they're not going in and talking to anybody, so they're not getting information that way. So this is a way for them to get some information, having an NPC around who knows a little bit more than they do. Right. And and I, and that's working well. Also, um, we just finished reading uh, Hamlet's Hit Points uh, for last month's book club, and one of the things that as as um, the author was analyzing Doctor No, one of the things that occurred to me that I could easily do in my game is include more NPCs as foils. Um, you know, combine the need for a foil to to sort of counterbalance and give people interesting things to role play against, mm-hmm. uh, but also to play the role that you're talking about is in terms of giving information and, and tying some things in. I think, um, I'm going to, I think I want to do some more with NPCs, I guess is what I'm saying. And this is sort of, this is sort of my first opportunity to do that is, is bringing in this one who, who just sort of joined organically. Right. So, so that's pretty much where we're at. That's where we stopped for, for the day. And we have only had the one session. So I guess I don't have much to say. Cool. Yeah. Look at that. Half my time. It sounds like everyone's game is rolling along pretty good. Yeah, and I'm only going to get to play once uh, between now and the next time we chat because uh, tomorrow I get on a plane for India. Um, mm. And then we'll play again sort of right at the end of the month. But then August is super gaming month. Yep. I get to game one weekend, Gen Con the next weekend, and game the next weekend. <laughs> Bang. Yeah, that's going to be cool. Are we doing something at Gen Con? I forget. Uh, we said – we don't have anything official lined up, but we said that we could, you know – Grab it a, grab a table and, in the middle of the D and D room and, and yeah that'd be cool with the background cool. of dice rolling and, and people cheering yeah <laughs> or maybe just one of our hotel rooms where it's quiet sure one sure. of the lobbies somewhere yep I'll have my mic and stuff because I'll be recording all the Watsy stuff and all the uh, Cobalt Publishing stuff cool so. oh yeah that's right all right well there's me yeah. with six all minutes right. to spare but that's good we have six minutes to spare because uh, we had a Twitter question oh, oh that's right. right. 
We had a question from Twitter. Uh, Frank reached out to us, Frank T., uh, and he asked a Thank question. Thank you, Frank T. That's right. And he has a question that I'm going to uh, probably lay at the feet of the great and mighty Mike Shea more than anybody, although, Randall, you've got some experience in this as well. Okay. Um, and I think I could – I mean I, I'm not qualified, but I'll speak, on, speak to this also. Um, he wants to know about when you're prepping or writing or designing for yourself – Versus for publication, how is it? Mm-hmm. Dif- how is it different? Very. That's that's oh, totally different. Yeah, totally different. That's yeah. that's my that's where I was going to go to, but yeah, yeah. Um, because they, oh well, Mike, I'll let you I'll let you finish up because you'll probably have much more to say. You're more experienced. <laughs> no, go that. ahead. You go first. So I'll go first, and then I'll let you follow up because you'll have more right. to say. My only comment is that basically the stuff that you design for yourself basically sucks, and it's not suitable for publication. <laughs> When you're writing for a publication, they have specific goals and needs in mind, and you're writing to those very specific things. You can pitch ideas, but most of the time, if those ideas aren't anywhere in alignment with what they want, it's not going to go. So you've got to write in such a way that it will match what, you know, how, how they do their stuff. And I think, I think I would, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that your stuff sucks. Well, Um, I, I, I would, I would say opposite, when, when I design, for example, for my own games, I, I'm designing to a very specific niche though, right? And, and if it was part of the larger system, it could completely unbalance everything because now this thing exists in the world, right? Right. Uh, but when it's just for my game, I, I can control, you know, well, there's one opportunity to, to get this feat or one opportunity to, to pick up this item or this is the only one of these creatures that exists. And so if it's unbalancing to the larger system, that's okay because it fits the niche and the need that I have at that time. Right. And then I can make up the rest of the rules. I, I you know if it didn't quite work out okay, that's okay. I'll make it work at the table, which I, you can't do that when you're writing for publication, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So it's it's funny. I actually, um, in my when I was running my fourth edition campaign, big swaths of that campaign I wrote out almost as though they were publication ready. And in fact, there was one uh, adventure scenario. It was a the like the you know the last big dungeon that the party went through, kind of one of the highest level dungeons, where I wrote it out so well that I was able to basically take what I wrote, rewrite it a little bit, and then made it a Kickstarter reward for somebody else's Kickstarter. The guy that came up with the um, random dungeon generator poster. Oh yeah. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a it was a Kickstarter reward for that. It was um, I forget what it was called, but it was a um, Temple of the Crypt things or something like that. And it's a you know. Priests of Orcus uh, would use it as a ritualistic ground to determine whether or not you could be a high priest of Orcus. You had to get through these trials and, and it had all kinds of different trials, sacrificing solars and stuff. Cool. Um, that was a rare exception, and I certainly don't do that level of writing now for any adventure that I am running myself. Um, Randall's right that I, I, don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that what you do for your game sucks because <laughs> it's it's actually perfect for your game. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just not useful at all to anybody else. I should clarify that. I mean, yeah. I didn't mean and I'm in sure that that's fashion. kind of what you meant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. I meant more not suitable for the general not suitable public. for publication. Yeah, and, right. And like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to take a three by five card. That I right. Three, and try to three pitch words that down. Into an idea, right? And I was yeah. like, what the hell does that mean? What do you mean? <laughs> you know. 
here, Watsy, I wrote down, I filled yeah. out this three by five card, publish an right. adventure. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And and a lot of that is because you don't need nearly as much. Like it's all, you know, it's all in your head. So you're just writing stuff down that's not in your head. Um, I think this touches on the whole thing that the whole problem I have with published adventures already, which is that if a published adventure is written from point A to point Z, you're really not making it the kind of thing that a DM can turn into their own thing. It's it's still not built like a toolkit of ideas for them to be able to generate their own adventure, which is why a lot of DMs I don't think use published adventures. I think a lot of them build their own game worlds and run their own adventures in those game worlds, and they might just steal ideas from stuff, mm-hmm. which adventure publishers are more than happy to have happen. Um, but you're also right that you know depending on what you're writing it for, if you're writing for Watsi, for example. Um, and Jeff, I think like I've actually never written anything for Watsi that they didn't ask me to write. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never actually sat down and said, "Here's this adventure idea that I have, and I'm going to pitch it to Watsi, and they're going to buy it." They've they've come to me and say, "Hey, we're we want to do this kill the wizard, you know, thing, and here's the general outline. You fill it in." And so that was really like you know work where you know, contract work, right? Where like, I didn't, you know, I already knew who the wizard was and that he was going to have to be killed before I ever even accepted the job. Um, so I was writing to their specifications, not to, you know, my group. And that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to write an adventure. And, and I, so I talked to Kim Mohan uh, about this last Gen Con. And one of the things he he said a whole lot of stuff that totally kind of blew me away. But one of them was like, you really have to consider who you're writing this for and the wide range of DMs. And you have to write adventures for DMs that have never run a game before. It has to be, you know, it has to be written to the level of somebody who can, you know, run this without really understanding the rules of the game yet and might never have sat down with a group and been able to run it, as well as writing something that's useful for somebody who's run a thousand games. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's hard to do. And and even Wizards is is completely changing how they're thinking about writing adventures. If you look at if you look at um uh Vault of the Dracolich uh and compare it to uh Keep of the Shadowfell, they're radically different in how they approach the idea of writing an adventure. Sure. Um and or or it's, it's like if you look at any of the playtests, any of the adventures that are included in the playtest, the open-ended sort of nature of the playtest adventures, and compare them to like you know Keep of the Shadowfell, which you can download for free and, and check out, um, they're radically different in how they uh, approach the adventure. They're generally much more open-ended now than they used to be. So clearly, even Wizards of the Coast, which is you know the oldest company, you know working on the oldest brand for role-playing games. They still haven't exactly figured out the best way to write a published adventure so that's useful at a game table. Well, and, and right. I think I think that's a target that's always changing anyway, right? Yeah, I guess right. Like yeah, uh, it's actually, definitely was, a moving target. I was going to ask uh, Randall about this during his section. Um, you know, when you look at Village of Hamlet and you consider the time it was written for and the kind of DMs it was written for and the kind of players that would be playing the game that the DM is running, you know. Mm-hmm they didn't know all of the little things that we have now spent 30 years figuring out when it comes to running an adventure like that. Like right. how, you, how you successfully approach a trap door or mm-hmm. how you can go up to the little arrow slits and fire arrows on the inside instead, <laughs> instead of getting shot from the outside. Right. You know, like our players are so much smarter. Now they have the, the internet, right, which ruins everything. Right. So <laughs> they, you know, they, they have so many ways now to understand this stuff. When you're writing an adventure for your group, you know all of these things. You know like how it's going to work out, and you have an ability to really customize things around them right. that you don't have with a published adventure. Um, 
So, you know, answering the specific question that he asked of, you know, the difference between writing a published adventure and writing a uh, writing one for your home game is it, it really comes down to a the amount of effort you're going to put into it. I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not going to put nearly the amount of effort into a home adventure that I will into an adventure I'm getting paid to write. Right. Oh, yeah, I think that would go without saying. I yeah. would go even further and say the piece that I did write for Wizards of the Coast and got published yeah. wasn't an adventure. Right. right. I, in fact, I would I would probably go so far as for me anyway. Um, I, I maybe I'm not that great at adventure writing. I'm just not a fan of it. I would rather take some aspect of the game and write about that mm-hmm. <laughs> and get that published. Yeah, right. Like I would, I would, right, so right. I agree. I would rather uh, write write you know scenario or like uh, you know adventure location sort of things like the idea writing, of never- exactly right. because I. Writing adventures is hard because, like Mike says, well, now not every group is an expert on you know medieval combat and tactics. Um, uh, you still have a certain amount of you know. Well, I saw this in so and so movie. Why can't I do that? You know. And the good DM will probably say, "Well, sure, go ahead," but at the same time, that could totally destroy your module if you or your adventure if you have certain things supposedly worked out. Uh, in and I'm saying in your home adventure now. Right. So. Um, and you can also like change things on the fly. Whereas once you've written something for publication, it's fixed until the DM who reads that does something with it. And so it's sort of like a set in stone until until I'm not making this point come across very well. But I guess um, when you're writing stuff for home, you can always say as things are going along, well, that didn't quite work out. Let's yeah, you know we're change direction. Things. Yeah. Let's add some armor to these guys because, you know, that's obviously how this is going to work out. Right. Or some kind of minor factor that you can adjust on the fly. And while a DM running a prepared module can also do that, you really don't want them to if you can help it because that just adds more work for the DM. Or, or you at least don't want to, to write an adventure assuming that they're going to do that. Right. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You absolutely don't want to assume that. So, so the, yeah. and, and, and you can assume that they will. Mm-hmm. But, but you don't want to write as if they will. Right. I'd yeah. say – so one last thing I want to add in. Jeff, I know you want to run, so yeah. we'll, I'll make this extremely quick. Um, I, you know, uh, adventures you write for home are written around your player characters. And adventures that you're writing for publication cannot consider the player characters. Yeah, and that's a right. huge mm. a huge disadvantage for published adventures, that you're writing without any idea – of the backgrounds and motivations of the player characters, which was really the interest, the motivations of the players as a, as a, as a DM writing for your home game, you really have the ability to do that. And I would say it's going to benefit your game a lot to do that. Uh, Even if you're running a published adventure, try to figure out how to tie the interests of your players into that adventure. The only one, um, uh, what sort of want to use? Uh, exception That's to that it. rule. Yeah. yeah, the only one exception to that rule would be if if you're providing the characters you're supposed yes. to run for the monster. Yeah, actually, I, I immediately thought of the Dragonlance adventure. Right. Um, you know, whatever it was, whatever the first Dragonlance adventure was, which has, like, the characters specifically in there. Or I think there's a new Icewind Dale one coming out. Well, and I have that from experience because I actually played a non-standard character for a DM that was running. Um, and we we used a lot of the standard characters as NPCs in the adventure because you almost have to, or the story falls apart, kind of. But um, he had to he had to work to fit my bard character in. Yeah, right. Because that's how I because there was no bards in that particular adventure. So yeah, and I'd still say that the disadvantage of that is now your players aren't necessarily tied to those PCs because they didn't make them. Right. It's really not theirs, and and so that that's a major advantage for home games. Mm-hmm. 
and a yeah. major reason why I think we should generally be focusing on adventure locations and modular information, you know, providing that to players rather than providing, you know, step-by-step -step adventures. Yeah, I agree. That's my, my opinion. And I nope, think it's I'd agree with that. Um, anyway. All right, cool. I think yeah. that's, that's some that was a good, great question. good topic of conversation there. Uh, and with that, we're going to let it go. So uh, right. that's the end of this episode, and we'll be back next month. And thank you to our sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Thank you to you guys for using our Amazon affiliate link and the D&D Classics affiliate link. And thanks to my co-hosts. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope that when you listen to this podcast, you have all your fingers and toes. So I hope you had a safe 4th of July. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I gotta go light some fireworks. Although this probably won't come out until after I get back from India, so it'll probably be a few a few weeks after. Namaste. Well, I I hope you are back and happy. Yes, I yes. also hope I am back and happy. I Safe. Hope, yeah. By the time this comes out, you will be back and everything will have gone splendidly. Okay. So, I, how was your trip? It was fantastic. Oh my awesome. gosh, you can't believe the stuff I saw. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and and if this never comes out, that means the trip wasn't hey, so good. Say something. <laughs> Give yourself some advice. Give myself some advice. This is your this is your chance to talk to you after you've come back from India. What do you have to say to yourself? Uh, get get more rest. Yeah. yeah. Good 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 thought. That's a, uh, you lowballed that one. That's Whatever. a safe one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a safe one. <laughs> All right. Goodbye everybody. Bye bye.